Hello and welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast. I'm Eric Olander in Paris, and as always, I'm joined by my co-host in Cape Town, South Africa, at the Center for Chinese Studies at Stellenbosch University, Kobus van Staden. Kobus, how are you today? Very well, thanks to you. Excellent. Well,、uh, and before we get started today, I also wanted to give a little shout out to thank everybody who's been、uh, participating on our new Facebook page at facebook.com/slash/ChinaAfricaProject, all one word. We've had some really nice discussions, and we're going to incorporate some of the comments actually from the Facebook page in today's show. On today's show, we're going to talk about three topics, as we usually do.、Uh, a, an interesting video surfaced this week on、uh, f- on YouTube. Uh, promoting uh, Chinese tourism in South Africa, so we're going to talk about the the battle that,、uh, particularly in Southern Africa, that、uh, countries are doing to lure some of the 70 million Chinese tourists that are now going around the world, and then we're going to talk about a Global Post article that came out on、uh, on Chinese auto manufacturers suffering、uh, suffering a reputational curse, and finally we're going to end on one of the themes of our podcast, which is the emergence of Chinese media in Africa and the new launch of the China Daily、uh, Africa edition out of South Africa. So let's get started, Kobus. We'll start with tourism.、Uh, not only is it South Africa that's really gunning for a larger share of the Chinese tourist market, but Cameroon as well. We've seen two articles coming out this past week on、uh, how the Cameroonians,、uh, you know, just sent a delegation in April to Beijing to try and lure. And entice more tourists. What's your thought on, in terms of where a popular destination might be for Chinese tourists, and is this something worth pursuing?、Um, it's very interesting for me、um, to see, you know, kind of the different approaches that the different African countries are taking. I think Cameroon is going for a very nature-based, you know, kind of safari-esque kind of.、Uh, You know policy,、um, you, you know, which is obviously the the, the traditional way for African tourism,、um, and I've seen、uh, you know kind of movements out of Kenya to kind of to also to、uh, you know kind of to pull、um, Chinese tourists to Kenya for for exactly in this exactly the same way.、Um, South Africa is going in a more kind of urban direction,、um, you know, focusing on township life,、um, which has been a kind of a tourism hit in South Africa with tourism with Western tourists, and it's interesting to see that they're in this. Video also targeting the Chinese in the same way. Well, this video was very well done. In fact, it's one of the best examples that I've ever seen in targeting Chinese、uh, tourists. You know, coming here out of Paris, which is one of the big、uh, international destinations for tourism, you haven't seen anything as polished as this. What I found interesting about the video on YouTube, and of course, we'll post a link to that video on、uh, on our Facebook page. In fact, I think it's already there. Is how they went after. They were really profiling individual tourists. Chinese typically, when they go abroad, tend to go in groups. But the South Africans seem to 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 going after two individuals. There was this cute kind of young urban professional kind of couple who were exploring the different sites, and they had some kind of contest going on. And the fact that they put this up on YouTube now, the fact that they put it up on YouTube is an interesting. Uh, you know, decision on their part.、Uh, I don't know if they have it on Yoku or Tudo because, of course, YouTube is blocked in China. So、uh, yes. maybe you know, another thing to think about is you know, with a million Chinese now living in Africa, are they also going after the global Chinese market? Maybe not just from mainland China. That's another thought to consider. I think so. I think another reason is is because the. As the, the Chinese tour group market in South Africa is already pretty developed, you know, kind of.、Um I live outside of Cape Town, and I used to live in in、uh, Central Cape Town, and they were very, you know, very frequently you saw kind of big buses of Chinese tourists,、um, and there there are tour companies who, who who cater explicitly for them, and they go on circuits, you know, kind of to 
kind of good Chinese restaurants in Cape Town, and it's it's there's a lot of infrastructure set up for them. So it seems like because that market is already up and running in South Africa, maybe they decided to go to target a different kind of Chinese tourists this time. Well, that's interesting you bring up this issue of the Chinese restaurants, in part because that gives South Africa a much bigger advantage over, say, Cameroon, where that infrastructure may not be in place and other you know, other destinations in Africa, because, okay, so you've got number one, uh, food. Food is very important, not only for for Chinese tourists, but, you know, you see all over the world when American tourists travel, what's the first place they go to almost? It's Starbucks and it's McDonald's and (laughs) Kentucky Fried Chicken. So uh, sampling the local fare is not always something on the mind, not only of Chinese tourists, but others. So one has to wonder in Yaoundé and other places if there is that infrastructure. The other big advantage, and this is something that I'd like to hear your thoughts on, is this direct air flights that just started this year. I think it was just this year between China and South Africa. Uh, that certainly has a uh, potential to help the tourism business. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, kind of, I think just in terms of the amount of, of the flight time that's kind of cut down, that must help, you know, kind of, because usually if you, in the past, you know, kind of going to East Asia, you would usually uh, transfer in Hong Kong, you know, kind of, which which would make, uh, you know, I mean, it's a long flight. Hong Kong to South Africa is about 17 hours, you know, kind of, so um, that's, and it adds another five hours or so, you know, and, and, a, and a transfer, you know, to that. So a direct flight, I think, definitely sweetens the deal, particularly, you you know, kind of um, East Asian tourists tend to not have the kind of amount of time that European tourists have. Um, you know, kind of they have to fit things in into a week, you know, and, and I think that definitely makes it easier. But let's bring up the sensitive issue here of security, because uh, it's been a really rough year for Chinese living in Africa. We, we obviously not we haven't seen any incidents yet of Chinese tourists either being killed or kidnapped, as we have with Chinese workers in Sudan, in Egypt, uh, in South Africa. We've seen Chinese residents uh, be the victims of violent crime. Johannesburg still is, uh, unfortunately, one of the most violent cities anywhere in the world. Do you get the sense that South Africa is going to dedicate more security resources to protect Chinese tourists or tourists of all kinds? And uh, and because my question is, is that at one point, if there is a high-profile, very public instance of a Chinese tour group or Chinese tourists who are either attacked or somehow violated, that could have a very, very profound effect, not only in South Africa, but elsewhere. Yeah, you know, um, you know, I think uh, I'd love to say yes, but <laughs> I'm, I'm probably going to have to say no. Yeah, um, yeah. I think, you know, kind of a lot of police was made available around the World Cup. You know, kind of, and and South Africa's um, tourism strategy is was shaped by the by the World Cup, um, and I think you know, kind of the kind of urban let's go take a bike tour through the township kind of tourism strategy is is a direct kind of heir to the the kind of image that South Africa built for itself around the World Cup, and um, you know, so there there are more sensitivity i think in in south african policing now um in order you know kind of about having to protect tourists that said south african policing itself is going through a quite a kind of a rough time at the moment there's there's a there's a lot of scandals there's a new big report that came out about police corruption um and you know kind of so from the south african side the police is not particularly popular at the moment and um you know kind of i think the t- protection of tourists is is going to probably fall victim to the larger kind of problems of South African policing, you know, kind of that that is bedeviling the whole of the society. And that's probably the same elsewhere on the continent as well, where policing is not always the most reliable force 
so tourism and policing. So it would be interesting to see how the Cameroonians and others are going to position security as, as a selling point and if it becomes a problem. The final point uh, that, we, that we can make a linkage to another story we've been covering, of course, is the Chinese demand for uh, you know, wildlife products. So we've been following a lot of the World Wildlife uh, Fund's uh, campaign against rhinoceros horn and whatnot. And one has to wonder if Chinese tourists come in in large numbers to Africa, will that increase the demand for these products that are, you know, obviously against the law and trafficking. Um, but, you know, now a lot of those, those illicit products are being shipped back to Asia. Will that create a market in Africa, a black market, to sell rhino horns and other wildlife endangered species? It might very well. I mean, you know, I, I, think, I think there's definitely the, the danger of that. However, I think it's also on the other side, um, there's a lot, of, a lot of contemporary African tourism has a lot to do with ecotourism. Um, you know, so I was looking at um, uh, a campaign to get Chinese tourists. In this case, they're, they're focused on quite kind of elite, rich Chinese tourists um, to, to take them to Kenya. It's this kind of guy who's based in London and he's running, um, he has an office in Beijing and, you know, kind of he facilitates tours for um, Chinese tourists to Kenya. And they do a lot of 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 kind of um, not only driving around and looking at animals, but actually, um, you know, kind of ex doing a lot of explaining on how the ecosystem works and trying to contextualize the kind of big glamorous, you know, kind of lion and tiger kind of, well, we all, not tiger, but, you know, kind of, um, you know, kind of big, uh, big and famous animals in a kind of a more ecological context. So it might have the kind of counter effect of actually making people more more kind of aware of of what the cost is of these kind of products. But yeah, I, I'm not sure. We'll have to see. Okay. Well, that'll be a, a subject that we come back to in the months to come. Let's move on to our second so subtopic of the day. Uh, a, an excellent article written by uh, the Global Post, Erin Conway Smith, uh, and she she wrote an article called "Chinese Auto Suffer: The Fung Kong Curse in Africa." And apparently, Fung Kong is uh, as a slang word in South Africa that uh, South Africans use to describe, well, what's effectively crappy Chinese products. And of course, this has been a, a constant. Uh, complaint that people across the continent have is the quality of Chinese products. Kobus, let's first start with the issue of cars in this article that, that Aaron put out. And let me give you a quote in the top of the article for you to kind of, you know, consider. Uh, she quotes a South African car reviewer who recently showered it with relative praise. That is the new Chinese, the, the new Geely LC, which is the, a Chinese car. She, uh, he said, quote, cheap and not at all nasty, said the headline. The reviewer noted the usual reputation of Chinese cars in Africa, quote, rubbish quality, appalling design, and disturbing smell of glue. So not, if that's in fact the, the reputation they're trying to overcome, they have a long way to go. But we've talked a lot about on the podcast over the past several months of the massive investment that Chinese companies are making in the African, African auto sector, in uh, new plants being built in Tanzania, in uh, Kenya, as well as in South Africa, in the auto zone in South Africa. You know, is this reputational challenge, is it legitimate today? Uh, and is it a fair criticism in your opinion? Well, whether it's fair or not, certain is prevalent. You know, kind of. I mean, the 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 word Hong Kong has has um, really picked up since since I moved back to South Africa um, in two thousand eight. I've been hearing it more and more and more. Um, and it is, you know, it's this kind of blanket kind of. Uh, 
blanket kind of um, designation that just covers anything basically made in China, you know. Um, and of course, you know, kind of other Asian growing economies had to overcome the same kind of thing, you know, kind of I think the Japanese had to overcome some of it, you know, several decades ago. Um, and I think for me, it's difficult to say whether it really is the problem with the product itself and whether it's the problem with, with its marketing and particularly particularly as the article also makes the point with, with customer aftercare. Um, you know, kind of the, the problem of, of, for example, parts not being available um, or, you know, kind of dedicated dealerships not, not having been developed in South Africa. I think that's, that's probably a big part of the problem in the car sector. In that sense, it's interesting to compare it to both South Korea and Japan, which has had a very long kind of engagement with South Africa, and you see Japanese and Korean car dealerships everywhere in South Africa. Um, you know, and, and I can imagine in the future the Chinese might follow the same kind of uh, model, uh, but they're not there yet. So this all might be just a question of growing pains. I mean, we're really just in the first phase of China's auto investment in Africa, and that dealer network needs to be established, the maintenance networks need to be established, and branding obviously is a challenge they're facing in a number of, uh, of corporate verticals, and they yet have to figure out a model on that. But let me let me put out an idea that is potentially not very politically correct. And, uh, you know, so I'll, I'll be the one to kind of put it out there because I know it's it's <laughs> talked about by others. Uh, I used to work in volunteer in uh, in homeless services in the United States for a long time and uh, for, for a number of different years for helping uh, homeless people. And one of the things that I found is that homeless people were among the most critical, you know, eaters. You could, you know, people who didn't have enough money to buy a meal, yet when food was delivered, you know, people would say, oh, this food is crap. I don't like it. It's terrible. And it was a little bit of, you know, like, wait, before this food was donated, you had nothing. Um, so I, I don't want to equate that homeless people and Africans are the same. Please do not misunderstand me at all. However, uh, prior to the arrival of the Chinese in large force, the number of products that were available on the continent for the low price that the Chinese offer uh, was minuscule. Uh, this is this, you know, and, and what I, I've talked in the past about and I've written about this as well, that China is employing what I call a Walmart strategy. Uh, Walmart strategy has been extraordinarily effective in the United States by going into communities of the working poor. And by the low prices, they give people more purchasing power to access a range of products that they never would have been able to have without Walmart. Yes, the quality suffered, but the buying power went up and the range of products available, you know, increased by a magnitude of 10,000. So, so in Africa, and, uh, and I saw this in Kinshasa, was, you know, the Chinese are bringing in a lot of low-priced, low-quality goods, but it's giving people access to those, to those products that they never had before. So is there a little bit of this, you know, you're not going to get high quality if you don't pay for it. Um, and most African consumers don't have the means to pay for the, the quality of product that you would find in, you know, in France and in Japan and the United States. It may not be fair, but that's the world we live in. Is, okay, so that's my politically incorrect you know, diatribe. Uh, what are your thoughts? I wonder if it. I think you have a point, and I, and I wonder if, it, if one, one part of that might be that up to now, the Africans have been completely marginalized from not only from from the products, but from the market itself. Um, so that the logic of of you know kind of this thing is cheap, but we can afford it, and because it's cheap, it might not be such good quality. But you know, kind of um, you know, it's 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 cheap enough to buy another one if if it breaks. That logic might not have kind of really. Uh, developed, you know, kind of in, in particularly in rural African populations, you know, kind of um, 
you know, they, they don't see, maybe don't see themselves in the context of how expensive things are in other countries. Um, and, you know, kind of maybe what we're seeing is, is a bunch of people who are really, for the first time, kind of like engaging with foreign-made products. You know, kind of it's not like they they kind of they had access to other kind of, you know, products from other countries before. You know, kind of a lot of them, if it's, you know, if it's a, a, little, a little clock radio, that's the first little clock radio that they've actually been dealing with in their lives, you know. Um, and then, so it's difficult for them to see it in the context of Chinese manufacturing, you know, kind of, um, you know, where I think Chinese um, shopkeepers frequently feel that, well, we're bringing it for you so cheap that you have to factor in a certain amount of, of crappiness in the product because it's so cheap. Um, and, you know, kind of maybe that's just not uh, a way that, that African consumers have, have yet kind of kind of grown to think. Yeah, you know, and, you know, this reputation that Made in China has, and it's a terrible reputation, but as you talked about, Taiwan had that reputation, South Korea had that reputation, Japan certainly had that reputation for a number of years, you know, implicit in Made in China is is, is crappy quality. Um, you know, this MacBook computer that I'm recording this podcast on, my iPhone, my tablet, my iPad, uh, all of it was made in China. And it demonstrates that the Chinese certainly have a capability of producing the highest quality products in the world if there is a market to support it. So I think one has to kind of take that into context. But let's, so on the consumer goods side, um, there's one final point on this is that it's also possible that the complaints that we heard and that we hear uh, are the squeaky wheels. You know, the fact is, is that, you know, the Chinese are serving, you know, hundreds of millions of people in Africa with new products and new services and new infrastructure. Uh, we don't hear from the people who actually think it's great. Uh, you know, I was, you know, I have one story. I, I wrote a story on uh, China Talking Points, also on the China Africa Project website, which highlighted Mr. Chen, who was a, a shop owner in, in, the, in the townships of Kinshasa. And he brought, you know, cheap headphones, cheap slippers, cheap radios, you know, all that crap made in China, that low quality stuff. And people loved it because they were able finally to apply a, a, what little disposable income they had to actually buying what was, uh, you know, effectively a luxury product for them. Uh, we don't hear from them. So I think when we take into account this debate on the cheap Chinese products on Facebook, on the blogs, on Twitter, you hear the naysayers, you don't hear the positive side either. So just something for some balance. Let me shift gears here, though, on this subject. Uh, it's not just on products that people complain about or cars that people talk about, but it's also on this question of infrastructure. Cabuena in our from two or three weeks ago, he mentioned uh, one example of how in Ghana, people would have preferred not to have any road than the cheap Chinese road that was built and that would later fall apart two or three years later. So this is an, this is a, a, an issue that extends even into the massive infrastructure projects that uh, that are being built across the continent by the Chinese. Yeah, I mean, I had to wonder about that, you know, really, would, would they really not have want, wanted any road rather than a road that's you know, 60% there. It's just, you know, it's difficult for me to put myself in that mindset. I mean, it might be simply that I am not don't really understand how people think, but it's just difficult for me to imagine that, you know, kind of like I would rather have half a road than not no road at all, you know, kind of, I mean, you can make your way around potholes, but if there's no road, then there's no, no, no yeah. road. You know, you know it's, it's one of these things as well where, 
you know, the, the scale of infrastructure that's being built by the Chinese, and we talked about this in our discussion about Ghana, is, is it's not all controlled by the Chinese. And this is something I think that's very important for people to understand, is that there are domestic political considerations on the part of African governments that go into determining the quality. And so a little bit of the anger that we see being directed towards the Chinese, in my view, is misplaced. Uh, the Chinese, as we've seen in China, and you go to China today, and they have world-class infrastructure. Uh, you know, some of the most modern train systems, yes, they have their problems, but they, it is a modern train system, subway systems, uh, you know, ports, you know, freeways. They are certainly capable of building top-tier, top-quality infrastructure. Uh, but in a number of different African countries, one of the things that we've seen is that the infrastructure projects have to adhere to indigenous, local, domestic, political concerns. Uh, again, going back to the example of the Congo, which I've brought up repeatedly on the podcast, you know, the Chinese were forced to finish the, the construction ahead of the election so that Kabila could go around and saying, look at what I accomplished, the, the five chantiers, the five construction projects uh, that, he, that, he had, that the Chinese were building there. So um, it's a much more complicated process than I think a lot of African critics give it and that it's not entirely the burden on the backs of the Chinese in terms of determining the quality and the, and the budgets that are allocated for these projects, because a lot of these are funded as part of very complex uh, mineral deals, uh, infrastructure deals, some of its aid, some of its ex-import bank uh, loans. Uh, so it really, there's a lot of factors that go into it. Exactly. And I mean, it also, it's, it's still, you know, a lot of that criticism is also comes from a kind of an aid uh, based economy kind of background, you know, kind of because one one has to wonder is like why why isn't the 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 government of the country being also being held accountable for this? Not only for setting up unrealistic timetables, but also for not not de not you know imposing quality control. I mean, any kind of road building, no matter you know kind of where it happens and who builds it, has to be you know kind of be signed off by the state. Um, you know, so just assuming that African states are incompetent and don't, you know, don't, you know, kind of is, is somehow, you know, kind of that, that we shouldn't expect them to fulfill that kind of, you know, normal state kind of duties. I mean, that itself is a problem. When Africans think like that, I, I find that problematic. Yeah. Well, you're echoing a comment that we got from uh, Molson Hart on our Facebook page. Again, that's facebook.com slash China Africa Project. He wrote, uh, he said there are three points to consider when we talk about quality. One, everybody has a right to complain. So that goes to our earlier point that maybe we're just hearing from the haters. Two, everyone has a right to complain, but they, do, they, they must also be responsible for inspecting the goods, and they're the ones to be held responsible for the quality. So that goes to your point about how there is some burden on the government themselves, and that ultimate inspection, Molson Hart writes, is usually on the African side, not on the Chinese side. Now, that applies to every country. So, you know, if there's tainted beef coming out of the United States, the South Koreans have a right to say, we're not going to import this beef. If there are low-quality products, then an African government can say, we don't want that product to be brought in. I mean, that it seems pretty straightforward. But again, you brought up this very interesting point that a lot of African governments aren't strong enough to stand up to the Chinese on this. Uh, one other final point before, before we move on is that you know, a lot of these goods are also being brought in, uh, not necessarily with the knowledge of African governments. So a lot of it's coming in via Rwanda and then being shipped over land into Congo and other countries. So it just sidesteps the any kind of customs control and whatever customs control there may be there. It also has the subject to being, you know, corrupt as well. Yeah. And I think also just finally, you know, kind of there's, there's also... Um, 
you know, the reality that that even like even before the Chinese came, you know, kind of, I mean, I, I think, you know, in, in net terms, the Chinese really, really improved access to to everything, I think, or, or to, to many, many products to, you know, kind of in Africa. And, you know, kind of before that, the logic of, of life in Africa was one of, of waiting for the spare part. You know, kind of like a friend of mine um, is, you know, he's an investment banker and he, he makes very good money and he, he bought himself a zippy little Alpha um, sports car, and that sports car was, you know, that that's um, it was it was sitting in his driveway for six weeks while waiting for a spare part to come out of Italy. You know, kind of. So I mean, that's that's the reality. That's African reality. It's you know, not kind of, just the so Chinese think, that suffer. From yeah, it's problem. not just the Chinese. And in fact, before the Chinese came, it was much worse. Yeah. So okay. Well, so quality is another one of these themes of the China Africa relationship that is. Uh, that is very interesting to watch, and I and I suspect you and I are, are I think more bullish than what we see on on the internet. That uh, there's more pluses than minuses to it, even if there are problems with it, and it's, there's not a universal type of standard. Uh, let's finish up today with uh, a, a, a return to a topic we come to repeatedly on the podcast: uh, China, the expansion of Chinese media. Uh, across the continent. So we've talked about CCTV Africa's presence in Nairobi. They're now broadcasting in HD across the continent. Um, and you can watch online some of the shows. One of the things I like about what CCTV is doing there, say, compared to even the network that I work for here in France, is there's a really strong presence of African voices. And I think that's something that's very, very unique. Uh, China Daily uh, launched their new uh, Africa edition out of Johannesburg. Um, now, China Daily, of course, is the English language publication of the Chinese government. Now, even though it is an official uh, state media, they, they claim they have some editorial autonomy and some editorial independence. Now, the international editions of the China Daily and the domestic editions may be somewhat different, um, but this was a, uh, an article published uh, by David Smith in The Guardian, and uh, it really highlights the fact that China is aggressively trying to get its version of the news out there. And I say its version because at the end of the day, you know, the BBC, Al Jazeera, France 24, uh, CNN, everybody's got a different narrative. And the Chinese have never been happy with the narrative that they've been portrayed and they've been assigned by the international media. So this is really a big effort to try and, you know, see Africa through their lens and through their perspective. When you see the arrival of China Daily in Johannesburg, do you think it's going to be greeted as propaganda? Do you think it'll be greeted as an alternative news source? Or lastly, do you think you'll just be ingredient with indifference in part because the storytelling isn't always that strong? I think it might be initially probably um, greeted with, with a little bit of indifference, but maybe not because of the style of the storytelling, but rather because South Africa is quite a kind of a, it's quite a kind of a tough media market, a, new, a tough newspaper market, you know, kind of it's a very competitive newspaper market. And um there, um, some of South Africa's most prominent newspapers um, that break the most kind of scandalous stories are weeklies. Um, you know, kind of so. Um, you know, kind of as a weekly, um, China Daily is going to is going to come up against South Africa's most most acclaimed newspapers, um, who all have already kind of carved niches for themselves. You know, kind of in terms of of kind of particular kind of sectors of the population they're appealing to. Um, that said, you know, kind of, I think it's also that they're but, arriving. But just to, sorry to interrupt you. Bear in mind, they probably are not competing in the domestic South African market for that same reader who is consuming the tabloids and whatnot. They're going for a more international, uh, you know, or regional perspective. Wouldn't you think that? Because there's no way they can compete with any of the local papers in that sense. 
Yes, um, but also in South Africa, the weeklies are also the ones that are that are the most kind of internationally kind of focused. You know, um, it's a, a newspaper like Mail and Guardian, for example, is as kind of explicit connections with the Guardian in the UK, um, and that and the Sunday Times are basically the the kind of the voices of what's happening in South Africa this week. Um, so, and I mean, then then there's also a lot of like you know kind of tabloidy kind of scandal weeklies as well. Um, the other, I, I think, the other the thing is also is that there's already a, a, a Chinese language, like a Mandarin language um, newspaper presence in, in Johannesburg. There's, a, there's a, a, a weekly Mandarin language newspaper that comes out um, that I think is, is run by the Chinese community in South Africa, as far as I understand. That's probably a uh, local paper as well. That's not yes, serving the continent. Yes, it's a local continent. paper. It's yeah. a China's based paper, yeah. That's right. Well, one uh, one area to kind of consider and why the Chinese are, in my view, might have some more effectiveness than I think people in the West will give them credit for is Xinhua. And Xinhua uh, is the wire service, the New China News Agency. And one of the things that they're doing is they're giving away the feed to African papers and African media outlets, whereas with AP and with Reuters and Agence France Presse, you have to spend a lot of money. And so a lot, you'll start to probably see, and we're seeing this in Zambia already in a lot of the newspapers there, you know, international news coverage, you know, bylined by Xinhua. And a lot of that's coming through free deals. So that's another way that the Chinese can kind of get their message out. And that's, of course, not necessarily covering Chinese affairs, but it's covering international stories. Uh, you know, the big problem with, with Chinese media is that what people are interested in is the Chinese perspective on what's going on in China. And, you know, things like Chen Guangcheng, you know, things like Bo Xilai. But those, uh, you know, those stories are not going to be aggressively covered by the Chinese media. So it's one of the inherent contradictions in the expansion of China's media, not only in Africa, but also around the world, is that, you know, what people actually will turn to China the same way that, you know, here at France 24, uh, people want to find out about the French presidential elections. Well, where do you go? You go to, you know, a brand that has the country in its name. And, you know, if you want, you know, hard hitting coverage of China, China Daily may not get it. The other thing that I think is a point of concern with the way that the Chinese cover things is how many stories about banquets and African leaders can you take? You know, so, I mean, you know, one after another, you see, you know, the, you know, the vice minister of, uh, you know, of XYZ met with the, you know, ZANU-PF, you know, vice minister, and they have the picture of them in front of the, you know, the banquet table and the requisite kind of, you know, banner up above talking about, you know, the, you know, Sino-Zambian, uh, Sino-Zimbabwe Friendship Cooperation Council Committee, whatever. And it just is like, ugh, it just makes you want to shoot yourself when you see that kind of coverage. So I'm hoping that the Chinese will, you know, raise the game of their storytellings to make their media offerings a little more compelling so that people will actually get some relevant, useful, tangible, actionable information out of it. Yes, and I think I think the the Chinese are walking a dangerous line with that kind of reporting because I think in, frequ in frequently they underestimate the level of resentment um, against the the local elite. Um, you know, kind of so so That's kind of the Im images of local elites hand in hand with with Chinese, you know, kind of with the Chinese government, it, it can come back to kind of buy Chinese interests, you know, kind of in that country. Um, I think, you know, in the last week we've seen in Zimbabwe the the opposition party has been using is, has been using kind of very kind of crazy kind of Chinese baiting to as what what I'm guessing as part of their campaigning against the ruling party. Um, as and we've been seeing in Ghana as well. 
Yeah, yeah. So you know, there's this thing of like, oh, these these corrupt these corrupt kind of fat fat cats. They're all you know, kind of they they don't care about you. They only care about the Chinese. You know, that kind of logic can can you know the the Chinese um, press can inadvertently kind of strengthen that kind of logic, you know, kind of which which could kind of turn out quite badly for them. Well, that's an interesting point you bring up about covering the elites. I think that comes, there's a, a tradition that you have to kind of be aware of when you think about Chinese media that remember that all Chinese media, especially the, the major state-run brands, and of course all of them are somehow connected to the state, but they don't work for the government. And this is a very important distinction that a lot of people don't understand. They work for the party, for the Communist Party. They are organs of the Communist Party. So this idea of using media to promote official events and an official kind of perspective on things is the tradition of Chinese, of, of communist era Chinese media. Secondly, one of the, the things when you, when you meet Chinese journalists, uh, and I've met several in Africa, but here in Paris, I've known many, and then also in Los Angeles, so pretty much all over the world, there is a culture of sticking very, very close to the embassy. Um, oftentimes the Xinhua News Agency and the China Daily Correspondents are actually inside the embassy, uh, or as in the case here in Paris, they have a, the news, uh, there's a news compound for all the various different Chinese news brands, uh, and they kind of live in their own little world. Um, they're not necessarily getting out into local people's stories, getting, doing original reporting. A lot of their coverage, and this is, you know, not a critique, but an observation, um, comes from watching television. You know, they'll sit and they'll watch the 24-hour news can channels and then write a story from that. So there's a little bit of sloppy, lazy journalism, and that's in part to reflect a little bit of the shortcomings of China's how should I say, it? anemic journalistic culture, so that that's in some ways a little bit of the backstory as to why you see coverage of the elites, in part because it's easy. You know, if you're based out of the embassy uh, and the ambassador's having a, a dinner reception, the ambassador says, I want to get some coverage on it. Well, the Xinhua guy's right around the corner. He's not an independent entity of the government, so he goes and covers it. He's not going to write in that story about the shortcomings of the Chinese embassy's, you know, policies in that particular country. That just, that won't happen. At least it won't happen in the short term. So, so those, it will be... You know, and again, I always kind of hesitate to kind of throw out these critiques because I see the Chinese adapting extremely fast to a new media universe. Um, but at the same time, the Chinese have also placed disproportionate emphasis on distribution of media rather than the quality of it. So one of the trends we're seeing in Africa today is they're very proud of the fact that they're broadcasting to the entire continent in, C in HD. They're very proud of the fact that they now have a distribution outlet for China Daily. Yet what we don't see developing quite as quickly is the storytelling, is the journalism. And I think, uh, you know, you can only go so far with weak storytelling. Yes, I think, you know, kind of, I think that's... Um that's a weakness in Chinese media generally, not only news media, but also also entertainment media. You know, kind of a lot of my of my own research is comparing Japanese and Chinese media and their you know kind of their relative successes and failures in the African market. And what you do find is that the Chinese have a much wider um, distribution. Um, you know, kind of um, a much, much kind of more tangible presence in the in the in the South African market and also the African market. But the Japanese have people's hearts. Yeah. The people the, there's much fewer people who really, really follow Japanese media in a in a in a dedicated way. But they are maniacs about Japanese media. You know, kind of they know everything and they download everything. It's difficult for me to see to which extent China's Chinese media so far managed to capture people's passion. 
the exception is Hong Kong media, you know, kind of is, is um, you know, the, the African and things like that. Yeah. And, and particularly, particularly martial arts movies like Africans love Hong Kong martial arts movies. Um, that's that's kind of like a, that's becoming a, a, a new kind of field of, of stuff that of, of research that I'm very interested in. And, um, you know, so, yeah, I mean, and, and I think that that comes from the China, the, you know, the PRC's culture of central control, you know, kind of culture. Culture only grows in culture is volatile, you know, kind of, and that and, and that makes it kind of difficult to use as a kind of a soft power, uh, state-based soft power expansion mechanism because it's so out of control, um, you know. And you see that particularly with the kind of level of crazy that you that you encounter, you know, kind of any time you look at Japanese media, you know. Um, so yeah, I mean, th- that's that I think is is a major challenge. It's it's a kind of a it's it's a, it's a fundamental challenge I think to, to that that's going to define how this kind of how 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 well it works for the Chinese, you know, um, yeah, because and, I'm putting a lot of money into this. This is a massive. Oh, investment. it's huge investments that they're putting in. You know, what's funny is that I can see the opportunity that they're going after. Is that we've talked about what's called the embedded narratives uh, of covering Africa in terms of news, and that embedded narrative is that if it's not, you know, child soldiers, rape in the Congo, famine, a starving baby, you know, Western media doesn't really doesn't really want to hear it. They don't want to hear the complexity of what the African story is. Um, you know, Al Jazeera has prided itself on quote giving voice to the voiceless. And Al Jazeera has done an excellent job in in covering Africa and covering you know most of the developing world, recognizing that there is this void in the narrative that's out there. China can be that voice if they want to. Um, I just I, I doubt they're going to hire the quality of journalists and the quality of news executives who understand this in order to bring that to market because the Chinese media, because it is a state-run organ for the most part, does not like to have senior executives who are not from within the party or within who have good guanxi within people who know that. So you're not going to have like at Al Jazeera where they went around the world, hired the best journalists from all the major international news agencies and, 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 and put them to work. Uh, now, CCTV has done that to some extent in Washington with their new CCTV America, uh, but we still don't know how far those journals will be able to push the, the bar. So final comments on this topic before we wrap up? Well, just, just in relation to that, I think one interesting thing to, to keep an eye on is that the China China Daily staff is really small. Like the, 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 the Johannesburg office is pretty much um, one editor and two permanent staffers both from Beijing. And then the rest of the mag- the rest of the newspaper is going to be filled with freelance by freelancers. So you know kind of it, one might see then a situation where there's less central control, you know, kind of simply because they're depending so much on local freelancers to to do some of the reporting. And I mean, you know, as as someone who's, who's spent a lot of time in the press in South Africa and has worked as a journalist, there's always journalists are always looking for work, you know. Um, so that might be interesting. I mean, that 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 could be a kind of a wild card that that makes you know, China Daily, a, a kind of a new factor in, in the market. Yes and no, but it also, you know, working with freelancers, and I've been a freelancer myself, it also kind of, you know, it's harder to ensure editorial quality, that mm-hmm. you don't have people who are, you know, well-versed in an editorial system, you don't, you get varying degrees of experience sometimes, some freelancers are great, some are, you know, 21 years old, right out of school, they don't have any experience, yeah. they're, and they're available. So, so that, again, that is a wild card to watch. Uh, we will keep our eyes on, on that subject going 
going forward. Uh, that'll do it for this edition of the China and Africa podcast. Once again, want to give a shout out to Ann Sherman, who is our Facebook community manager out of Washington, who's doing an excellent job kind of animating our, our Facebook page. That's at facebook.com slash China Africa Project. Please do uh, sign up for it. Uh, we're having a great discussion. One of the interesting things that we're having that's coming out of the Facebook page is we have a lot of African voices and we have a lot of young people. Uh, so if you're really trying to get, you know, you know, academics talk to themselves, I find. And so if you really want to get a much more authentic point of view on what are some of the things that are happening, uh, this Facebook is an excellent tool. And that's what we're trying to foster. We're going to be pushing the page uh, into various universities in the United States. Hopefully Stellenbosch uh, will get more students there to sign up for it. And uh, I'm going to be pushing it here in Paris. So we'll get a real global discussion on China in Africa. Hope that you will uh, participate. Give us a like. Give us some comments. Uh, we now also have a feature where we have all of the back episodes of the podcast available there. So if you want to listen to some of the things we've talked about over the past few months, that too will be available at uh, on facebook.com slash China Africa Project. Quickly before we go, Kobus, if people want to follow you on Twitter and all of your insights that you're giving every week, where can they find you? I'm at Stadnesk, that's S-T-A-D-E-N-E-S-Q-U-E. And also I try and, um, you know, kind of everything I post on Twitter, I also try and, and, and post on our Facebook page as well, you know. So I try to kind of to, you know, I show up on our Facebook page or I try to like a few times a day. Excellent. Uh, and you can follow me. I'm at E-O-Lander, E-O-L-A-N-D-E-R. I'm tweeting uh, almost every day the top four to five stories on China in Africa. And of course, you can follow me as well on the discussion on Facebook. Facebook uh, and all the comments, we put our name next to it. So it's hard to tell who's talking. So we put if Kobus or if Ann or if myself are commenting, you'll see that. And so I'm also commenting uh, quite a bit on Facebook. So that'll do it for this edition. We'll be uh, back again next week with another edition of the China in Africa podcast. Thanks so much for listening.